Hello everyone, I'm uh, recording from Colombia and I've got myself locked in my bedroom here and it's going to turn into a sweat box. I need to normally sleep with a fan blasting on me and uh, when because you, if you got the doors closed, oh man does it get hot. And But you know, I need the silence to record. Yeah, who knows how much sound from the street is going to make it onto here anyway because it does get loud. Uh, people, you know, blasting music, driving motos up and down the roads. Uh, there's guys going around selling uh, whatever with they'll have like a loudspeaker on their cart that just continually shouts out the you know fruits that they're selling uh, so we'll, we'll see what uh, if you get anything else but uh, what I want to talk about is the fate of the apostles and well starting with Peter and what led me here was I've actually had this book for a while called The Fate of the Apostles, Examining the Martyrdom Accounts of the Closest Followers of Jesus. And it's a book written by Sean McDowell, and that's the son of Josh McDowell, if you've ever heard or read his books, famous uh, apologist. And I got this for my birthday uh, about a year ago, and... I think it was my birthday. Maybe it was Christmas. I forget. And uh, anyway, I, I thought, well, I was, you know, this is interesting stuff. Um, I don't know, even I'll, I'll read you the synopsis. Hopefully this keeps recording while I change pages. Um, just got doing this on my cell phone here. The Book of Martyrs by John Fox, written in the 16th century, has long been the go-to source for studying the lives and martyrdom of the apostles. Whilst other scholars have written individual treatments on the more prominent apostles, such as Peter, Paul, John, and James, there is little published information on the other apostles. In The Fate of the Apostles, Sean McDowell offers a comprehensive, reasoned, historical analysis of the fate of the twelve disciples of Jesus, along with the apostles Paul and James. McDowell assesses the evidence for each apostle's martyrdom, as well as determining its significance to the reliability of their testimony. The question of the fate of the apostles also gets to the heart of the reliability of the kerygma. Did the apostles really believe Jesus appeared to them after his death, or did they fabricate the entire story? How reliable are the resurrection accounts? The willingness of the apostles to die for their faith is a popular argument in resurrection studies, and McDowell offers insightful scholarly analysis of this argument to break new ground within the spheres of New Testament studies, church history, and apologetics. So I had actually heard him on a, a podcast. He was brought on to talk about this because you know, something I didn't know was that there wasn't, I guess, m much out there in this regard. And uh, so I was like, oh, I gotta listen to this one. That sounds really interesting. And then I th thought, okay, now I want to get the book. And I had always planned to uh do, to do this to go through the book each chapter do a podcast on each one and so everything that i'm going to like a lot of this who knows if this will be even any good it's like because i'm i'm basically going to be just reading chunks of the book out 
Uh, I haven't taken this and summarized it in my own words or anything, but I mean, audiobooks are a thing, so people don't mind listening to people read, but uh, I'll just be a little different. And well, I've done some before where I read for my own work, but anyway, um, uh, I wanted to start with Peter, and then we did at our church the uh, sermon series on First Peter, and I was like, oh, well. Uh, you know, if that, is, if that isn't a sign from heaven to get started, I don't know what is. So, uh, yeah, I, I just had, I had been going through reading this and just highlighting passages that I thought were good. And uh, what's really interesting um, is you, you get a lot of stuff from these Gnostic Gospels and uh, these, uh, non-canonical books. And, you know, we're used to saying, you know, talking about how these things are no good. They're not authoritative because you'll get, uh, people who will say, well, you know, why don't you trust the gospel of Thomas? And this stuff came up a lot in my ministry, uh, with Muslims in England and, because there were certain gospels that they liked because the picture of Jesus that was presented in these uh, uh, non-canonical gospels uh, fit the Jesus that they believe in or the um, Isa, as they would say. And um, it's interesting because, because we've always kind of been on the or normally are on the defensive when it comes to these things depending on the argument being had they're also an aid uh, and I can't remember if he goes into this uh, in this book but it's just something I know that I'd thought about before because these are still in certain ways uh, proof texts that Jesus or the apostles or what have you existed and you know they're inaccurate but they are still coming like they're based on something they didn't just come out of you know it didn't it's not like I just wrote a book today about I don't know let's look around here Swiss army classic man that's just I say uh, those words on a there's a perfume bottle or cologne bottle over there and I, I started writing a story and put it out about Swiss Army classic man and you know that would have come out of nowhere whereas in this case this is all being based on something that at least came before existed possibly I guess you could say is that you know there's always these arguments like you know the works of Homer were they based on real things and then there might be other works that has more stories about Achilles or uh, the heroes of the Trojan War and it's like well does that mean just because there's a whole lot of these that they're based on something like not necessarily does it mean it's true but it is evidence that you could use to point towards that I think and when you've got uh, the gospels and Paul's letters and well, I mean the New Testament that's all been written within a certain amount of time after the death of Jesus and then you've got all these other books that also speak about Jesus and the other uh, 
characters, people, I guess maybe you shouldn't say characters, uh, of the New Testament, it's like, well, okay, here's, you know, another ball in our court. And, but some of these are, are funny. And um, I remember my fur, uh, one of my professors, uh, when I was at Nottingham, Dr. Professor Roland Dynas, he uh, talked about the, uh, some of these books that were going around back then. And honestly, it seems uh, like, like almost like the close thing today would be like comic books, maybe or like pulp novels. And uh, they were what was the most popular thing of the day for uh, even up, I guess, to the Middle Ages, I believe, were these, I don't know, novellas of about Alexander the Great and uh, his exploits and uh, different sort of legends about him. And that's what uh, a lot of these non-canonical books uh, resemble. And uh, I've got an example here of just one of the things that happens in, in them. And, you know, it's just funny to read, like, compared to the Gospels that we have. And actually, I'll read a bit more than I was planning, because this is all from the introduction of the book. Um, bu -bu -bu. While many legendary accounts of the lives and deaths of the various apostles occur in the early writings of the church, including some seemingly unbelievable legends contained in the apocryphal acts, the key, the key question is not whether they contain some legends, but whether they contain a historical core. I think that's a more, a, a better way of saying what I was trying to say earlier. And then in the footnote here, and uh, one thing I'll add is I often find the best stuff in a book is actually in the footnotes. I don't know why that is, but I mean, this is a great example of that. This is if you're someone who skips footnotes, sometimes you're or endnotes, which are really annoying, but sometimes you miss amazing stuff like this. So uh, when he, he uh, said apocryphal acts, he's got a footnote there and it says for example in the acts of john a group of bedbugs pester the apostle john they annoy him so much that he commands them to stay far away from the servants of god they wake in the morning and find the bugs patiently waiting at the door of the room the bugs continue to obey the voice of john in the acts of philip a huge leopard prostrates itself at the feet of three apostles and speaks to them with a human voice and in the acts of paul Milk splashes on the tunics of the executioners at the beheading of Paul. So, you know, as you can see, uh, these are a little different <laughs> at times than the Gospels we do have or uh, the letters that we have. Um, and very funny in some cases, but they still uh, are talking about people that we are familiar with. So getting on to... Simon, Peter, Cephas, Pierre, Pedro, and his martyrdom. What happened? And I'll read from here. Many non-canonical texts carry Peter's name, showing that Peter was considered the foremost apostle from the 2nd to 6th centuries. These include the Gospel of Peter, Apocalypse of Peter, 
the Acts of Peter, preaching of Peter, the Acts of Peter and the Twelve Apostles, Acts of Peter and Paul, Passion of Peter and Paul, Letter of Peter to Philip, and the Martyrdom of Peter. So again, right there, we've got how many? One, two, three, four, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine uh, different uh, I don't know, books that are mentioned right there that most people have not heard of. And they're all date from different times and some of them much later than others. So, you know, we don't use them as proof um, of things really that happen, but because they're so late, but I mean, they're still very early compared to us now. So, you, you know, a book from 500 AD talking about something that happened 500 years earlier um there might you know just be some kernels of truth in there such as peter being a real person and uh to me that is something else like when people uh incorrectly speak about how well the only proof uh that this stuff is true is the bible how come it's only found in the bible and probably mentioned this before but even just that well the bible isn't one book it's many books so you've got 26 books for proof in the new testament uh all from the first hundred years and like well that's a lot of witness and that's just the ones that are canonical uh, there's many more beyond that and I, I mean you can just keep building outwards from there till you get to these ones um, and so a little intro about Peter. Although Peter denied Jesus three times, he became emboldened in his faith after the resurrection. Acts reports his willingness to suffer for proclaiming the Christian faith. After being threatened by the Jewish authorities, Peter and John say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When the apostles were arrested a second time and taken before the Sanhedrin, Peter responded, We must obey God rather than men. Morris Inch concludes, Peter was willing to die at that moment for his faith. Not a bad turnaround for a man who went from tilting at windmills to having the faith of a child. Fortunately, his time to die for his faith wasn't for years to come. Peter's willingness to suffer for proclaiming his faith came from his belief that he had personally witnessed the risen Jesus. The fear that overtook Peter at the arrest of Jesus had been replaced with a newfound boldness. So the traditional story, right, is that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Um, and I've got here, the earliest statement that Peter and Paul were buried in Rome comes from Gaius as found in Eusebius. I can point out the trophies and brackets monuments of the apostles. If you will go to the Vatican or the Ostian Way, you will find the trophies of those who founded this church. Karsten Theed considers this positive evidence tracing back to Peter's martyrdom under Nero in Rome. And continue reading here. Oh, that was also from a footnote too. Um, while the biblical book of Acts reports neither the death of Peter nor Paul, and while no other early ancient text states it directly, 
Nevertheless, a host of indirect witnesses help us to determine the likelihood of Peter's martyrdom in Rome. And so we've got the book of Acts that has Peter going about preaching and teaching, starting in Jerusalem and uh, going outwards from there. Uh, let me read here. Church tradition has Peter ministering in Syria, Greece, Anatolia, and Rome. Larry Hellner Hellier notes, These traditions are not manufactured out of thin air. Paul's letters give evidence that Peter was indeed in Antioch of Syria and almost certainly visited Corinth. There is a good reason to believe that Peter addresses the believers in Anatolia because he is in some sense their apostle. It may be that many of these people were members of the Roman house churches before being forcibly relocated to the eastern fringes of the empire. This correlates with the tradition that the Apostle Peter actively served the church in Rome for some years. In short, it is likely that Peter evangelized among Jews and Greeks in the Western diaspora, including Rome, over a period of at least 16 or 17 years and possibly more. Some people uh, will complain or make a big deal out of like, well, you know, if Peter was in Rome, why... This is me kind of summarizing just some more of what's in the book uh, here. Why um, why didn't Paul mention him in Romans? And I think the, one of the best things they can say about that is mentioned here is that it's an argument from silence. Like, okay, just because Paul wrote a letter to you guys, why does that mean he's got to mention Peter? It's like we're trying to read or trying to, you know, add into what we want the text to say just so we can feel good about it like ah ha, ha, see look at Pete. he mentioned peter there peter's in rome but like he doesn't do that so then that proves he wasn't and you know that you're just trying to make an argument that feels like for argument's sake because uh, how many times have any of us written letters, emails, whatever, and if you went through our emails or letters, uh, oh, there's no proof that you're related to you know someone else in your family. You never mentioned them. Meanwhile, of course you are. All right, I've got a big text to read here. Oh, Peter in Rome. 1 Peter 5.13 provides the earliest indirect evidence for Peter's stay in Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. According to Richard Bauckham, all recent scholars recognize that Babylon refers to the church from which First Peter was written. The Old Testament city of Babylon was in ruins, so he could not have been referring to that city. Rather, it was a relatively common cryptic name for Rome, the enemy of God. Like the Hebrews exiled in the Babylon of the Old Testament, Christians in Rome felt themselves exiles in foreign land, a sinful city that oppressed the people of God. This fits Peter's earlier reference to their experience as sojourners and exiles. If, a conser if conservative scholars are correct, this is a first century reference to Peter's presence in Rome, dating possibly as early as the 50s. If Peter's pseudonymous, then it dates the 80s or 90s at the earliest, most likely in the early 2nd century. Even at this later date, 1 Peter 5.13 would still qualify as good evidence that Peter was in Rome at some time. A second line of indirect evidence lies in the likelihood that Mark wrote his gospel based on the testimony of Peter while in Rome. 
Papias reports that Mark was Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately all that Peter remembered from his experience with Jesus. Although Eusebius recorded the writings of Papias at the beginning of the 4th century, these writings date from two centuries earlier and are likely reliable tradition. Irenaeus, who likely wrote from the Roman archives, also reports that Mark recorded Peter's experience with Jesus. The only exception among the church fathers was Chrysostom, who believed Mark recorded Peter's account while Peter was in Egypt. Um, internal evidence also indicates that Mark was written in Rome. For instance, numerous Latinisms in Mark suggest a Roman origin. That's really interesting. And he cites that there's a, apparently a flavor, a Roman flavor, to the opening lines of the gospel and also points to the prominence of the centurion's confession. And it's also worth noting here a quote from uh, Irenaeus. After their departure, Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. And now uh, here I'm going to be reading a chunk that's going to also throw some dates at you so that you can uh, know when some of these things were written. Since the middle of the second century, Christian writers unanimously concur that Peter visited Rome. In his letter to the Romans, AD 106, Ignatius assumes that Peter had already ministered in Rome. In the Apocalypse of Peter, AD 135, Jesus commands Peter to go to the city of the West, which is undoubtedly Rome. Dionysius of Corinth wrote a letter to the Roman Christians, AD 170, in which he claims that Peter and Paul sowed among Romans and Corinthians. And Gaius, Roman presbyter in the early 3rd century, circa 199 to 217, claims that Peter and Paul founded the Roman church. Towards the end of the 2nd century, AD 170s, Irenaeus says that Peter and Paul preached at Rome and laid the foundation of the church in uh, Against Heresies 311. Finally, the Acts of Peter, which is AD 180-190, explicitly mentions that Peter went to Rome to challenge Simon Magus. In some, early Christian tradition unanimously puts Peter towards the end of his life in Rome. Alright, so now we're going to look at the evidence for his martyrdom. And I already mentioned that the, or what the traditional view of that is. And uh, I guess putting it in these words though instead, that he was crucified in Rome during the uh, from the book here, uh, during the reign of Nero in AD 64-67. Um, he says a minority of scholars doubt this account. And so if you notice in that uh, section there, rather than what I said, he just says crucified. I said crucified upside down. That's the story I figure a lot of us have heard. He didn't mention the upside down part, and that's for a reason that we'll get to uh, eventually that I feel like some people might not like, but oh, we'll see where the evidence takes us. You make up your own decision. So the earliest reference to the death of Peter, and uh, that's actually found in the Gospels and uh, in John. So, uh, and from Jesus. And so in John 21, 18 and 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, he actually wrote this book, it seems to me, uh, not like as a book for Christians in particular, but actually as a, you know, sort of scholar, scholarly work. And because he, he, you'll see comments or bits like this uh, talking about this passage, he says, uh, the cryptic nature of this passage makes it likely an authentic saying of Jesus. So that's the type of thing you don't normally see in a book written for Christians be, you, that take the view that, well, if it's in the Bible that we have, then yes, it's an authentic saying of Jesus. Um, yeah, this is, you know, to point out all the different I guess, verses that scholars have sort of taken apart and said, and, you know, there was the whole famous Jesus seminar thing where they would vote on which uh, sayings of Jesus were authentic or and which were not. And uh, this verse, I, I guess, fits the pattern of what most scholars, Christian or not, would decide were authentic sayings. Well, that's really just an aside, but maybe helps explain at times some of the language that might be used in the book. And uh, it is sort of actually funny to read this book. That, uh, well, my, yeah, my first, um, my first uh, impression of Sean McDowell was from the podcast, and he, I don't know, just seemed like a cool guy uh normal um i guess what you'd expect some someone who wrote a book coming on to talk about the book and then to read the book and it's uh i guess again sort of what i expected um may although maybe more scholarly than i expected but then i uh, decided to uh follow him on social media on instagram and it's he's so different like he's got videos up um and in like in the background he's got all like superheroes and stuff like that it's just funny to see you know someone's real personality versus the personality that you read into something they wrote based on the context of why and for who they're writing and on this passage he writes commentators unilaterally agree that this passage predicts the martyrdom of Peter. Bart Ehrman concludes, It is clear that Peter is being told that he will be executed. He won't die of natural causes. And that this will be the death of a martyr. So, my kind of running theory is that Christians will often use Bart Ehrman quotes uh, whenever he says something that agrees with us. Because he kind of seems to be like the celebrity uh, non-believing theologian. And so anytime that he agrees with us, it's like, hey, look at even Bart Ehrman agrees with us. And 
I mean, it also fits what he's trying to write. But I, I that's just something I've noticed in a lot of things I've sermons, you know, I've listened to or uh, videos, podcasts, whatever books. And I guess you could say speaking of celebrity, non-believing uh, theologians, uh, he also quotes from Rudolf Bultmann, uh, dude from the past, and who says that this passage is not supposed to be taken as a prediction of the crucifixion of Peter uh, based on his interpretation of the passage. And which I won't even bother getting into. Uh, but uh, McDowell writes, even though many have accepted this interpretation, his reasoning, Boltman's, that is, uh, is unconvincing. In the ancient world, the phrase stretch out your hands frequently referred to crucifixion, specifically in the second century. Certain Old Testament passages that involved the spreading out of arms or hands were often understood as prophetic types of Christ on the cross. For instance, in Exodus 17.12, Moses lifts up his hands in the battle against Amalek. The Epistle of Barnabas 12 and Justin Marr's dialogue with Trifo 90.91 interpret this as a type of the crucifixion of Christ. Another example comes from Isaiah 65.2b. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. This was understood as a type of Christ in the Epistle of Barnabas 12, First Apology of Justin 35, and Irenaeus, the demonstration of the Apostles. Preaching 79. The Odes of Solomon makes it clear that that stretching out of hands is a reference to crucifixion. There's also evidence that pagan authors considered spreading out their hands as a phase in crucifixion. And uh, what I've done with this book uh, is that I, I maybe even said I just went around highlighting stuff. And maybe I should even say, I'll say what Boltman said. Um, he, he had just said, uh, that the prophecy of Jesus is an old proverb. Oh, sorry, this is McDowell starting off. Oh. Uh, Boltman says that the prophecy of Jesus is an old proverb that merely contrasts the robustness of youth with the feebleness of old age. And the quote is, In youth a man is free to go where he will. In old age a man must let himself be taken where he does not will. In other words, Peter was free to go where he desired, but in his old age he will unwillingly be led by another. Thus, according to Boltman, uh, as I said before, this passage does not is not supposed to be taken as a prediction of the crucifixion of Peter. And on this uh, term of stretching out of hands, and uh, he also writes here that Ramsey Michaels, a scholar who I'm not familiar with, uh, he doubts that this term, this phrase, stretched out your hands, is referring to crucifixion at all. And it's just something about being helpless before you're executed or arrested. And he points to how neither um, Isaiah or Moses were killed by crucifixion, so you can't make these uh, comparisons. Uh, though, um, this is, I'll read. Uh, right on from here, the Johannine editorial aside in John 21, 19a, however, clarifies for the reader that the context is specifically about the death of Peter. Michael's second reason is that if it referred to crucifixion, the stretching out of the hand should come after Peter is taken where he does not want to go. However, Bauer has argued, per, argued persuasively 
the Roman crucifixion victim would have first been forced to carry the patibulum crossbeam on his back while his arms were stretched out and tied to it, and then forced to walk to the place of crucifixion, precisely what happens to Jesus. And so, um, even really if there's a mistake going on here, but is this actually talking about Peter being crucified? It is clear, no matter what, that it's still about him being martyred at somewhere, some kind of death he's going to glorify God with. So the next place to go is Second Peter uh, in chapter 1, verse 12 to 15. And this is where Peter is providing a sort of farewell address. Um, and something has gone on. Something has gone wrong. And uh, I'll read from here. Peter's goal is straightforward. He's about to die and wants to give a reminder to readers of what he has taught them. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of the qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by the way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And I uh, think... Apparently, he's got here that uh, I have not gone to look this up, uh, going and taking this by faith. I'm trusting. Uh, the word body here is the same word as tent. And he writes, the tent is a metaphor for the human body, which is common in scripture and references Isaiah 38, 12, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, and 5, 1 and verse 4, and John 1, 14. It indicates that Peter's remaining time on earth is short. Daniel Keating observes, the image of a tent always spoke of what was passing and transitory, looking forward to what was stable and permanent. And the reference to departure is a euphemism for death. And it is interesting to read this all together like this in, I guess, chronological order, because, you know, you just get that statement by Jesus telling Peter about the way in which he's going to die. And then you've got Peter here now uh, basically, I mean, not basically, directly referencing that. And on that, uh, he's got a bit here quoting Richard Bauckham. The only plausible reason is that there was, oh, sorry, why uh, would he be mentioning this to the, the people he's writing to? Uh, but the only plausible reason is that there was a well-known dominical prophecy of Peter's death, which the readers of Second Peter would know. And so it is natural for the writer to add a reference to this prophecy. So what was the prophecy to which Peter refers? Four common, common explanations have been offered. And I guess the best thing I should do, just read through these. Again, uh, John 13, 36. In this passage, Peter asks where Jesus is going, and Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Although Peter had expressed his willingness to die for Jesus in verse 35, uh, Jesus knew he was not yet ready. The past, this passage is a prediction of Peter's future martyrdom, but since it is before the death and resurrection of Jesus 
and few details are given. Most scholars reject it as providing the primary background for 2 Peter 1.14. Uh, second one, Apocalypse of Peter. In this mid-2nd century document, circa AD 135, Jesus says to Peter, I have spoken this to you, Peter, and declared it to you. Go forth, therefore, and go to the city of the west and enter into the vineyard, which I shall tell you of, in order that by the sufferings of the Son, who is without sin, the deeds of corruption may be sanctified. This passage unmistakably offers a post-eventum prophecy after the martyrdom of Peter. Bauckham writes, since it follows a passage which seems which seems dependent on 2 Peter 1, 3-11, and precedes it a passage which is dependent on the accounts of the transfiguration, including 2 Peter 1, 16-18. It is probable that the prophecy is inspired by 2 Peter 1, 14. Uh, and what you've got there, I want to just read that little bit again. I've spoken this to you, Peter, and declared it to you. Go forth, therefore, and Go to the city of the west and enter into the vineyard, which I shall tell you of, in order, there, in order that by the sufferings of the Son, who is without sin, the deeds of corruption may be sanctified. I just sounds so complicated. <laughs> maybe it's not, maybe it's just me. But I find a lot of these non-canonical books um, are a a lot more, I guess, fanciful. I mean, this one, Apocalypse of Peter, so they're trying to go probably along with the Apocalypse of John, Book of Revelation, where you see more, you know, this, I guess, typical of apocalypse literature, apocalyptical literature, I should say. Um, the next one, though, number three, Quo Vadis. From the Acts of Peter 35. According to this story, Peter encounters Jesus while escaping arrest in Rome. Peter asks Jesus where he is going, and Jesus replies, I go to Rome to be crucified. Jesus then ascends to heaven, and Peter returns to Rome, rejoicing that he can be crucified. The story clearly has the marks of legend and is likely a historical fabrication. Furthermore, since the story is first attested in 8180, to 190. Even if it were historical, it is highly unlikely that it would be the source of revelation from Jesus in 2 Peter 1.14. Um, and this one, I can't remember if we're actually going to come back and talk more about Quo Vadis. But it's just interesting sometimes how timing coincidences work out. Uh, I first became familiar with this story not too long ago. Um, don't remember how, but you know, you st stumble into some sort of rabbit hole on the internet and you just keep clicking links. And I got to, uh, um, there was a movie, I guess, about called this at one point. Uh, I, it was old. Uh, you know, why not? I've got, I've got a phone here. Why not? We look. Let's let's see when this movie was, but it was one of those ones where people were talking about, I think, good, you uh, know, what do they say, sand and sandals movies. And okay, here it is, it's from nineteen fifty one, seven point one out of ten rating, uh, from IMDb, seven point three out of ten from Films Affinity, and three point six out of five from Sensacine dot com 
And uh, the synopsis here, Roman general Marcus sparks rebellion when he falls in love with a Christian slave. When atrocities are performed on the Christians, Marcus saves his love and her family. And so I was like, oh, interesting. And so I read more about the movie and found out that it's got this whole connection um, to Peter. And um, yeah, so then I'm reading this book and was not expecting at all to come across this. Um, and... Oh, here, here, I've got even a better synopsis from Wikipedia. The story set between 64 and 68 AD combines both historical and fictional events and characters and compresses the key events of that period into the space of only a few weeks. Its main theme is the Roman Empire's conflict with Christianity and persecution of Christians in the final years of the Julio-Claudian line. Unlike his illustrious and powerful predecessor, Emperor Claudius, Nero proved corrupt and destructive and his actions eventually threatened to destroy Rome's previously peaceful social order. Order, The title refers to an incident in the apocryphal Acts of Peter. Oh, the film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture. There you go. So, maybe worth watching. Um, some of those old ones, like Ten Commandments and all that, they're actually pretty amazing to watch compared and compare with the movies nowadays because you know nowadays you see like a hundred people on screen even and it'll be like 75 of them are cg <laughs> and you watch those ones like doesn't matter how many people there's ten thousand people on screen or something and they're all real people in costumes and it's just kind of amazing to watch just from that aspect that like everything you see people made for real um whether you know the fakest it got let's say would be a painted backdrop but you they they would build real structures uh they would get all these people i'm way off uh, on a tangent but uh you know maybe that helps that i'm makes my work more original instead of just reading from this book the whole time so going back <laughs> there's the four uh, points or the four uh, in uh, common explanations. The fourth is John twenty one eighteen. This is the most likely interpretation, as we have seen. This passage undubitably alludes to Peter's martyrdom and is very probably a reference to crucifixion. Some have questioned this interpretation since it vaguely refers to future death for, for Peter, but gives no indication of time. Uh, John twenty one eighteen indicates that. Though the prophecy will take place when Peter's old, but no specifics are offered. And, and we've talked a decent amount about that passage already, so I won't say any more there. Uh, I won't read any more from that section. So to conclude on Second Peter, I'll read what McDowell writes here. Uh, and actually, I'll include a bit more than I was planning to, just to show you what I was talking about, about the way he writes in this sort of more scholarly fashion um, that you might not see, depending on what type of Christian books you read, uh, you might not always see it. Even if Second Peter were pseudopigraphal, um, it would be clear that the author portrayed Peter as likely going to die soon. 
and if it were written after AD 64, the Neronian persecution would have been well known. Thus, neither Peter nor another writer would mean additional revelation outside of the known tradition from John 21.18. To infer that Peter's death was imminent, Bauckham captures the significance of this passage. This makes St. Peter an early evidence of the Roman Church's own tradition about Peter's martyrdom. That Peter is represented in 2 Peter as writing from Rome, and the knowledge that his death was coming soon strongly suggests that even if it cannot quite demonstrate that Peter was known to have died in Rome. And so, yeah, you've got him. I, I think one of the passages I'd read before also mentioned about if First Peter or Second Peter are pseudepigraphal. Um, that's, you know, something, you know, we don't usually entertain so much in Orthodox Christianity unless we're writing a book. Maybe, maybe I'm just... This is, I guess, my experience of the, the books I've read. Um, you know, you, I guess you'd say sort of more typical devotional Christian literature doesn't get into this stuff. And um, because sometimes stuff like that comes up here, I don't know who's listening. I don't want them to think, well, this guy, like the fact that you know, like, he's even entertaining that Peter could be pseudepigraphal. Um, and he must not be someone worth listening to. And, and I want to say, no, no, he seems like really good and worth checking out. And he's written some books with his dad, actually, too, um, who is a lot more famous. And so we're going to move to our next uh, document. First Clement 5, 1 to 4, and this is uh, actually funny because what I just said uh, about Bart Ehrman earlier, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's what's going on here, but it kind of fits it. First Clement is the first non-canonical document that refers to the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. While some scholars have denied this claim entirely, a significant number of scholars believe First Clement 5, point 1 to 4 provides early attestation for their martyrdoms, including Bart Ehrman. And I figure not everyone is going to be very familiar with Clement, who wrote this, so maybe I'll just get a little brief uh, bit about him. So, Clement of Rome, I'm going to just read the Wikipedia uh, intro. Uh, was a leader in the Church of Rome in the late 1st century AD. He is listed by Irenaeus and Tertullian as the Bishop of Rome, holding office from AD 8 AD to his death in 99 AD. In the Catholic Church, he is regarded as the third Pope as Clement I. He is considered to be the first apostolic father of the Church, one of the three chief ones together with Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch. And uh, going back to the book, um, standard dating puts the letter toward the end of the first century, AD 95 to 96, but some scholars believe it was written much earlier. And, uh, this document has special significance because it is the only non-canonical document attesting the deaths of Peter and Paul within the first century and is written within one generation of the deaths of the apostles. And, 
Uh, early church tradition is unanimous that Clement of Rome is the author. First Clement was commissioned to the church at Corinth by a small group of presbyters in Rome for which Clement was likely the secretary, secretary which explains why his name was associated with the letter. And yet scholarly research has revealed little knowledge of the ethnicity of the author. And then I'm going to quote now from this book, from, sorry, not from Clement himself. Uh, th this is the passage. And uh, the sh he's talking about the shortcomings of the church at Corinth. From this came jealousy and envy, strife and faction, persecution and disorderliness, war and captivity. And so the dishonorable rose up against the honorable, the disreputable against the reputable, the senseless against the sensible, the young against the old. For this reason, righteousness and peace are far removed, since each has abandoned the reverential awe of God and become dim-sighted in faith, failing to proceed in the ordinances of his commandments and not living according to what is appropriate in Christ. Instead, each one walks according to the desires of his evil heart, which have aroused unrighteousness and impious jealousy, through which also death entered the world. So, Clement is interested in jealousy. And uh, from there, uh, he goes on. Uh, his first example is Cain and Abel. And he then gives additional examples of jealousy in the Old Testament. And then... We get to what he writes next. Uh, I should add, um, McDowell uh, writes, Clement is particularly interested in cases that end, or sorry, while not all these conflicts result in death, Clement is particularly interested in cases that end that way, which is why he provides disproportionate detail in the first example of Cain and Abel. Um, and then, yeah, what he next gets to. Uh, the context of the early chapters of 1st Clement helps us understand the particular passage that focuses on the apostles, Peter and Paul. And Clement wrote, But to stop giving ancient examples, let us come to those who became athletic contenders in quite recent times. We should consider the noble examples of our own generation. Because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most upright pillars were persecuted, and they struggled in the contest even to death. We should set before our eyes the good apostles. There is Peter, who because of unjust jealousy bore up under hardships not just once or twice, but many times. And having thus borne his witness, he went to the place of glory that he deserved. And that was super interesting for me. I've always wanted to read the Church Fathers. And just, you know, what was that's been for probably 15 years I've been wanting to and haven't gotten around to it. So it could be one of those things that never happens. Uh, but we'll see. And uh, I, so I, that was new for me. This whole jealousy thing was interesting. And again, going to a footnote here, it is unclear precisely what the jealousy was that led to the death of Peter. Grant proposes that it may have been ultra-conservative, uh, Jewish Christian missionaries who demanded circumcision and rejected the more moderate approach Peter had taken to Antioch and denounced him to the Roman authorities. Michael Grant, in, sorry, that, that's who wrote it, St. Peter, a biography, um, 
Hellier concurs, since Peter championed Paul's law-free gospel, he may also have encountered bitter Jewish, bitter Jewish Christian opposition. Is it going too far to suggest that some of these opponents informed on Peter's whereabouts and were indirectly involved in his arrest and martyrdom? This is in fact similar to what happened to Jesus by his fellow Jews. Mark 15.10 reports, For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. And one thing that was mentioned by a professor I had that I guess I'll, I'll leave this one nameless because I've never been able to find and the I guess any reference proof of this. I just I don't know taken it as uh, trust. Um, but he he had mentioned that Stephen uh, was martyred because of issues between the Gentile and Jewish Christians, and that Stephen was a gentile and their you know jealousy again i don't know but that there there was issue there and then the jewish christians handed them over uh to be stoned and he gets into some uh back to clement uh gets into some of the people that disagree that this is proof of anything uh, mentions a guy uh, Michael Golder rejects it as any evidence he thinks it's improbable Peter ever made it to Rome um, and since uh, his, his quote here uh, Peter was the prince of the apostles and if he was martyred at Rome every Roman Christian would have known about it Clement shows knowledge of Peter's martyrdom at Rome then he was martyred there if Clement does not know about it, he was not so martyred. Golder finds it surprising how little Clement seems to know about Peter. Golder is right that if Peter had died in Rome, every Roman believer would have known about it. But the core problem with Golder's position is that it is an argument from silence. So, uh, this comes up more than once. And, uh, yeah, there, you know, there's no way of knowing what, uh, as he writes, there's no way of knowing what Clement knew about Peter. He, there's The only record is what he wrote down, and that has nothing to do with... I mean, currently, in this podcast, there's no proof that I can count to 10. <laughs> All you know now is that I know the number 10, but you don't know if I know the ones that come before it, and you don't know if I uh, can say them in order. Although I did say... Uh, some of them when there was those four points but i was reading that off a page so you know who knows if i can do it on my own uh that you know that's a story for another time and a way to i guess conclude first clement here is mcdowell writes that this uh letter provides strong evidence that the martyrdoms of peter and paul were part of the living memory of christians in rome and likely in corinth towards the end of the first century according to bart Ehrman, by the end of the first century and into the second it was widely known among christians that peter had suffered a martyr's death that tradition is alluded to in the book of first clement so our next letter is Ignatius and 
you know, once again, yeah, the, his uh, letter to the Romans. And once again, I'm going to try and just read a uh, intro about him. And here we go. Ignatius of Antioch, also known as Ignatius Theophorus, was an early Christian writer and patriarch of Antioch. While en route to Rome, where he met his martyrdom, Ignatius wrote a series of letters. This correspondence now forms a central part of the later collection of works known to be authored by the Apostolic Fathers. He is considered to be one of the three most important of these, together with Clement and Roman Polycarp. His letters also serve as an example of early Christian theology. Important topics they address include ecclesiology, the sacraments, and the role of bishops. And now quoting from McDowell's book, Outside his letters and a few brief comments by Polycarp, we know little about the life of Ignatius, an early 2nd century church father, who on his way to martyrdom in Rome wrote letters to various churches. His letters focus on rooting out doctrinal heresy with the churches and emphasize unity and harmony among believers. Ignatius claims to be the Bishop of Antioch of Syria. And the key passage of interest is this letter to the Romans 4.3, where he, he writes, I am not enjoining you as Peter and Paul did. They were apostles. I am condemned. They were free. Until now I've been a slave, but if I suffer, I will become a freed person who belongs to Jesus Christ, and I will rise up free in him, and in the meantime, I am learning to desire nothing while in chains. And so, uh, as mentioned here, the letter doesn't, act, doesn't actually mention that either Peter or Paul were in Rome, but it's the assumption is there because he's talking about and uh, joining himself to them as Peter and Paul did, and he's writing this to the church in Rome. So, makes sense. And the fact that he, uh, I'm just sort of summar summarizing stuff that McDowell's written here, um, that he singles out Peter and Paul um, from among all the different apostles he, or people he could have picked from, uh, shows that he seems to have been aware of traditions relating to their deaths in the city. Yeah, maybe a rule of thumb here is if I'm saying anything that sounds smart, uh, it's from the book. And if I say anything that sounds smart and it's wrong, then that, I guess, would be from me. And I just somehow managed to sound smart while saying it. But yeah, anything wrong is likely me and throwing out my own thoughts. And yeah, I probably should have put that warning out there. So we've got a second letter from him. Uh, he's, he's got back-to-back -back entries. Good for Ignatius. Letter to the Smyrnians. Smyrnaeans. I don't know how you want to say that. It's a lot easier to say Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, although... I don't think it's actually easy to say unless you've just heard it enough times that you know to say it that way. Um, and that's uh, where Polycarp was a bishop, um, who was a big deal. And um, let's just take a read now from that letter. For I know and believe that he was in the flesh, 
uh, even after the resurrection. And when he came to those who were with Peter, he said to them, reach out, touch me and see that I am not a bodiless demon. And immediately they touched him and believed, having been intermixed with his flesh and spirit. For this reason, they also despised death for they were found to be beyond death. And, you know, nothing specific really uh, is there, but we can read into the text a little bit um, uh, from Richard Bauckham here. He must have been able to assume as common knowledge that at least some of the 12 had died as martyrs. It would be strange. Uh, oh, this is back to McDowell. Though. It would be strange if Peter, the only apostle mentioned by name, were not one of these martyrs. Um, the fact that the apostles despised death indicates Ignatius believed they were willing to suffer and even die for the belief that they had physically seen the risen Jesus. Ignatius mentions the apostles' willingness to suffer and face deaths as evidence for the reality of the resurrection. While we cannot be certain where Ignatius got his information, his letter does presuppose the martyrdom of many of the apostles, including Peter. And with that, we start getting into the, the, funny, the funny stuff. Um, the uh, pseudopigraphal works. And the first is the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, it begins with Jesus sitting upon the Mount of Olives as he teaches Peter and the disciples about the end of the world. Clearly presents Peter as the lead disciple, just as in the Gospels and Acts. It is generally agreed the Apocalypse of Peter dates from the first half of the second century, circa eighty one thirty five. And uh, so the, he mentions here that there are a lot of different versions of the apocalypse of Peter and that, and I'm, I'm assuming he, what he's referring to is not just different copies, but variations in text. And he's saying that the Ethiopic, uh, apocalypse, uh, mess that one up. Apocalypse of Peter is the only complete text and is considered the best representation of the original. But uh, I guess it just leads to some questions about what the original one of this was, which in a sense doesn't bother us because it's not part of the canon. But in a footnote here, footnote strikes again. Talking about this, he mentions it was discovered in the Nag Hammadi Library in 1945. And that's just a, a, another one of these things that I came across uh, prior to reading this, um, going you know down a rabbit trail. And I want to get uh, tell you a little bit about this because it's very interesting. Again, when we're talking about um, books that uh, early literature that might refer to stuff that we see in the New Testament. And uh, I'll just read this from Wikipedia. The Nag Hammadi Library is a collection of early Christian and Gnostic texts discovered near the upper Egyptian town of Nag Hammadi in 1945. Thirteen leather-bound papyrus codices buried in a sealed jar were found by a local farmer named Muhammad al-Saman. The writings in, in these codices comprise 52 mostly Gnostic treatises 
but they also include three works belonging to the Corpus Hermeticum and a partial translation alteration of Plato's Republic. Um, let's see, it's more... Uh, oh, how about I just read uh, the name of a whole bunch of these books, and you'll see that, like, pff, no idea what this stuff is in here, but it's early, I mean, early in regards to us being 2,000 years later, not early in regards to how reliable it is, but uh, they've got Prayer of the Apostle Paul, you've got the Apocryphon of James, you've got Gospel of Truth, you've got Treatise on the Resurrection, you've got Tripartite Tractate, uh, so some of these may actually have nothing, you know, like Plato's Republic has nothing to do with what we're interested in, uh, and that, I have no idea. I could click the link and find out what that one's about, but it's not my purpose. Apocryphon of John, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, Hypostasis of the Archons, on the Origin of the World, Exegesis on the Soul, the Book of Thomas the Contender, uh, Holy Book of the Great Invisible Spirit, Ugnostos the Blessed, the Sophia of Jesus Christ, the Dialogue of the Savior, uh, Holy Book of the Great Invisible Spirit, uh, looks like there's some, uh, some duplicates in here. Apocalypse of Paul, first Apocalypse of James, second Apocalypse of James. Uh, he got more Apocalypses than, uh, the others, I guess. Apocalypse of Adam. That would be an interesting one. Acts of Peter and the Twelve Apostles. Like, yeah, I'm not going to go through all 50 or whatever of these. But you get the picture. Like, there's a lot of documents out there that talk about the people that are in the new testament that are from you know could be some of these couple hundred years later but still sort of something we can in some ways point to when we you know that they're they wrote with the assumption that these people were real um and the quote, though, now getting back to the Apocalypse of Peter, and uh, Peter, in quotation marks, will say, because it wasn't actually him, says, I've spoken this to you, Peter, and declared it to you. Go forth, therefore, and go to the city of the west and enter into the vineyard, which I shall tell you of in order that by the sufferings of the Son, who is without sin, the deeds of corruption may be sanctified. As for you, you are chosen according to the promise which I have given you. Spread my gospel through all the world in peace. Verily men shall rejoice. My word shall be the source of hope and of life. And suddenly shall the world be ravished. And um, then he's got a quote uh, here where uh, another scholar has done a trans a translations with corrections from the greek text because that was from the ethiopic text and it's behold i've shown you peter and i've explained everything and go into a city ruling over the west and drink the cup which i have promised you at the hands of the son of the one who is in hades in order that his destruction might acquire a beginning and you of the promise and yeah you've got city ruling over the west not really any good options there other than Rome for that. And drinking the cup, which I have promised. Uh, I mean, that's something straight out of 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so a reference to martyrdom. And then he's got, though somewhat odd, the expression, the son of the one who is in Hades, likely refers to Nero. Uh, in this statement, in order that his destruction might acquire a beginning, Peter's preaching in martyrdom Rome act as the channel through which God overcomes the power of Satan. And uh, the same scholar who translated that uh, this document uh, here, Bolcholtz is his name. What's his first name? Uh, gotta find it. Now I wish I didn't say that because I'm just wasting time. Uh, he must have come up before because they're not quoting him in the footnotes. The with his first name, just his last name. Oh, too bad. And he says this is the po this is possibly the oldest known unambiguous allusion to Peter's death in Rome. It witnesses to the idea that Peter's death must occur before Satan's destruction can begin or to the idea that Peter's death must occur before Satan can really begin his final work of destruction. Either way, Peter's death is seen as a sign of the end, and surely this must be a very early idea, one which would not have arisen too long after Peter's assumed death in Rome, and one which would not be incorporated into new works at a date too far removed from that period of time. And... Just to summarize some uh, what he's written, they've taken this on its own. This would just be some modest evidence that uh, Peter was martyred in Rome. But taken with everything so far it's come before, this is just, you know, adding another piece to the puzzle. Even though it's, I guess you could almost say fantasy literature in a sense. It's basing it off something. It's like, Fantasy based in reality, I guess you could say. Oh, one more little interesting footnote uh, popped up. Uh, Bauckham, the martyrdom of Peter. Uh, Bauckham observes that that reference of the one who is in ha the son of the one who is in Hades, like he re refers to Nero. That I gotta find footnote again. Uh, this is likely a relic of an early Christian reference to Nero as the Antichrist, which is specifically related to the persecution of the church and Peter's martyrdom. I just found that interesting. Our next document that we're moving to, though, now, moving on, is the Ascension of Isaiah. And he, uh, McDowell says he can be divided into two visions. The first vision contains the narrative of the martyrdom of Isaiah includes the hope that the beloved will return and destroy the opposing forces. Belier becomes angry with Isaiah and Manasseh and has him sown in two. The second vision contains an apocalyptic account of Isaiah through the seven heavens with a focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus and ultimate defeat of Belier by the beloved one. And I should mention um, a bit of an intro on that. And that this is a early 2nd century Old Testament pseudepigraphal apocalyptic text, circa AD 112 to 138. And uh, Jonathan Knight has argued that the ascension of Isaiah aims to address the Christians who feared that Rome would implement similar policies against Christians just as Trajan had adopted in Bithynia in the early part of the 2nd century. And quoting from this book, uh, from the Ascension of Isaiah. 
he says, then will arise Belier, the great prince, the great, the, sorry, the great prince, the king of this world, who has ruled it since its origin, and he will descend from his firmament in human form, king of wickedness, murderer of his mother, who himself is king of the world, and he will persecute the plant which the twelve apostles of the beloved shall have planted. One of the twelve will be delivered into his hands. And so uh, the context of this passage is the prophecy that the beloved one will return from heaven and send Belier, in brackets, Satan, to Gehenna, while providing rest for the godly. All those who had supported Belier will be destroyed and hope is provided for the those currently facing persecution. And Belier, if you didn't get it yet, <laughs> based on what we mentioned before, uh, clearly is referring to Nero. And, you you know, you've got them even talking about killing his own mom there. So makes it a little bit obvious if you know the story. And uh, McDowell mentions this, which is new for me and uh, interesting. This passage picks up the idea regarding the myth of Nero's return, which appears in other literature of the time. Didn't know that. Nero's coming back again. <laughs> and uh, you could, uh, I guess, yeah, he, he mentions, say this is referring to the execution of James, but if this is about Nero, um, doing it doesn't really make sense for it to be James and then he's got here Daniel O'Connor captures the most straightforward way of understanding this text if the passage is read without prejudice the most convincing interpretation is that Belier is a cryptic name for Nero the plant stands for the church and Peter is the one of the twelve who is delivered into his hands the passage refers to an apostle who fell into Nero's hands which most obviously refers to Peter the only other apostle for whom there's any tradition of his martyrdom under Nero. And yeah, I guess he'd add that, uh, you know, the apostle wouldn't be Paul because Paul's not one of the 12 who, and he, he in the passage said one of the 12. And to conclude this uh, funny letter, uh, I guess Bauckham seems to, Richard Bauckham, he seems to be the, the guy who brings the business because I've been quoting from him a lot in this book and he seems to be a, he finishes things. He's like the conclusion of a Bauckham quote. Uh, as Bauckham concludes, because the ascension of Isaiah was written during the living memory of Peter, the tradition of Peter's death in Rome under Nero would have been commonly known and easily identified by the first readers. And skipping ahead, even while this passage in Ascension of Isaiah does not explicitly state that Peter was martyred by Nero in Rome when Belier is identified as Nero with the understanding that Nero's persecution was confined to Rome and the likelihood that the one refers to Peter, this most likely refers to Peter's death in Rome under Nero. Coleman, therefore, may be right. The Ascension of Isaiah is likely the first and earliest document that attests to the martyrdom of Peter in Rome. And our next document, we got a couple of these. Uh, let's see. I Just to give people an idea how much longer we've got. Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to tell you how much longer we've got. You, you guys can look on whatever you're listening to. 
and see how much is left in this thing. But I'm on page 81 of this uh, book and I end on page 92. So you got like 10 more pages of content to go through and hopefully you're enjoying it. But um, I don't want you to think like, oh, okay, he's finally done when I moved. But I, really, I'm just moving to like the next book. How many more uh, documents go through? So we got the Acts of Peter still. We've got what comes next? Uh, oh, the section on was Peter crucified upside down. The Apocryphon of James, Dionysius of Corinth, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and then the conclusion. So we've got a couple more to go. And this is going actually longer than I thought. Um, I'm having fun though. And this actually, half of this is me being able to learn better. I think probably the internet or phones or computers and all that is made thing made it so much harder. I, that's what I'm blaming anyway. I don't have no proof for this, but I have such a hard time remembering anything I read now. So I thought, okay, if I highlight the things. And then I talk about them like this. I'm gonna. I remember it a whole lot better. I find that I'm good with conversations, but reading, I've lost a lot of my ability to remember things. I used to be able to read a book and then could write the paper on it or do the test, no problem. Just from you know, just one read through. Not anymore. Um. So the Acts of Peter. Uh, most but not all scholars date the Acts of Peter to AD 180 to 190, which falls within the living memory of the life of Peter and thus may have some historical value for this investigation. And there's a bunch of nutty things in this one. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if this is the one where the the cross comes and talks to Peter at some point. They're one of these uh, you know, Acts of Peter, Gospel of Peter, so the name something like that. That happens in one of them. And I actually didn't highlight this part, but I think it's worth reading too. Um, there, despite the legendary accretions, um, their value as historical witnesses is not abolished. Christ Dean Thomas writes, the mere fact that externally attested first century individuals appear as protagonists in the pages of the Acts of Peter is sufficient to show that these narratives were not fictions completely divorced from historical memory. Uh, and quoting from her, like the storytellers in the first phase, the authors of the continuous narrative had limits to creative license. The basic characters, Peter, Agrippa, Nero, Eubula, and Marcellus were already part and parcel of the narrative. The basic outline of the story was also given. As suggested above, however, this author was not consciously attempting innovation, but was striving to collect and preserve as much of the story of Peter as possible. Uh, McDowell writes, The writer of the Acts of Peter did not simply invent material, but were bound by received tradition. We have reasonably earlier pre-existing traditions, and in particular martyrdom traditions, have been incorporated into the text. And so if you haven't, I guess, gotten to this point, gotten to this on your own um i sound ruder than i meant it but 
that's why these pseudepigraphal, non-canonical, legendary books uh, are still important in in the sense of that they're proof of pre-existing knowledge, uh, general knowledge of uh, a story. Uh, you you get you might get the same story beats through them, and as we've been seeing, one of them is the martyrdom of Peter in Rome. Um, and then, uh, again, oh, this is, I, they actually get into what I was mentioning about those Alexander the Great, uh, historical novels, they're calling them here. Uh, they get into that here. The most commonly repeated genre for the Acts of Peter and the other apocryphal acts is the ancient novel. While not disputing that the genre is novelistic in some capacity, Thomas says it should uh, properly be called a histor historical novel. The acts of Peter embellish their characters using the same means as the novels, but the relationships to historiography differs considerably. The novels, both erotic and historical, avoid direct reference to commonly known historical events. Although the minor characters may be drawn directly from the historical figures, neither the main characters nor the story refers to the events or public figures who populate historical discourse. In texts such as the Acts of Peter, However, the narrative focused directly on figures of great public significance to the Tradents, and it is precisely the most noteworthy events in the lives of the characters uh, that become the province of the Christian writers and storytellers. This is certainly true of Simon and Peter, and even of secondary figures such as Marcellus. However, historically worthless or distorted the information in the Actus Vercellensis may be the objective is not to tell something that may have happened in the past using history for decor, but to retell the most significant and well-known events from the public life of an individual. A narrative about noteworthy events of the past is the main objective. The Alexander Romance provides the best generic parallel among the novelistic products of the Roman Empire, alongside of the imaginative and improbable occurrences that form the fabric of the narrative. The romance also narrates all the best-known events of Alexander's life. And so he poses, uh, McDowell poses the question um, based on if we got historical memory and legend in here, is there a way that you can figure out, can you decipher? And he says, is there a historical kernel we can trust? And he talks about some things that are clearly embellishment. And he talks about how Peter performs a whole bunch of miracles in the story, but they're done to prove that Peter, um, he uses the term narrative devices to prove that Peter is from God and represents God and Simon is a forgery. And it's not to say that Peter performing miracles is... Uh, the issue, but it's that the the way the miracles are used is to move the story along and uh, to hit the beats that the author wants the story to hit. And you know, you've got here in the footnote, Peter performed a number of miracles, including paralyzing half the body of Rufina, the adulterer, bidding a dog to condemn Simon, restoring a shattered statue of Caesar, ordering a dead tuna fish to come alive and swim again giving a seventh-month-old baby a voice to condemn Simon, and raising the son of the prefect, the widow's son, and Nicostratus from the dead. 
I'm not adopting a naturalistic bias that assumes supernatural events must be legendary. Rather, the quantity and quality of the miracles sets them apart from the canonical Gospels and Acts and indicates they, as a whole, serve a literary and theological purpose and are not meant to be taken as historically veridical. And yeah, we, I'm assuming everyone listening to this knows Peter performed some miracles in the gospel, but these, uh, pretty much all of those don't really fit the miracle traditions that we have. And then, so going to his martyrdom, the tradition surrounding his death by Nero, however, is less secure. Outside the Acts of Peter, only the ascensions, uh, the ascension of Isaiah and the apocalypse of Peter allude prior to the 3rd century to Peter's death by Nero. And it is interesting that Peter's arrest and death in the Acts of Peter have nothing to do with the Neronian persecution. No mention is made of the Roman fire or the blame Nero placed on the Christians. Nero only appears at the beginning of the narrative and briefly at the end, which indicates it could be a later addition to the text. In the Acts of Peter, Peter is arrested because of the jealousy of Agrippa and Albinus, whose wives and concubines will no longer have sex with them since their Christian conversions. Coleman believes this, this may be part of the historical core of the Acts of Peter, since First Clement reports that the deaths of both Peter and Paul were occasioned by jealousy. And you get a bit here where they're just talking about how, uh, we, I guess, we don't know how well known the tradition of Peter being martyred by Nero was at this point and it is uh see what's he say significant that the authors uh don't link that together and so it, this doesn't I guess prove or disprove anything there but when we get here in the martyrdom of Peter when Peter approaches the place of execution he gives a speech to the people and the cross. He concludes by saying, But it is time for you, Peter, to surrender your body to those who are taking it. Take it then, you whose duty it is. I request you, therefore, executioners, to crucify me head downwards in this way and no other. Peter gives a final speech while upside down on the cross and then dies. And jumping forward a bit. The narrative indicates a turning point in cosmic history in the cross of Christ as well as the cross of Peter. The world has been turned upside down by sin, and so Peter can see the upside-down nature of the world clearly while hanging with his head downward on the cross. His speech makes clear that Adam, the first man, fell head downwards and turned the cosmos upside down. But only through Christ can the world be seen upright. Thus, the crucifixions of Jesus and Peter restore the creation though through the new Adam to its intended functioning. Is the upside-down crucifixion of Peter reliable commentary? The earliest church father to mention it, Origen, in volume 3 of his commentary on Genesis in the 3rd century, circa 230 AD, makes no mention of Peter's prolonged speech. It is uncertain whether Origen derived this from an independent tradition or from the Acts of Peter. We do have evidence Roman executioners varied their crucifixion practices for their own sadistic pleasure. However, so it is not intrinsic, intrinsically implausible Peter was crucified upside down. Still, while it is possible the tradition preserves an early memory of Peter's upside down crucifixion, the evidence is simply inconclusive. So that was actually one of the more surprising things for me to read. And that the upside down crucifixion is, I 
first mentioned here in the Acts of Peter. And although now I'm kind of actually confused when he talks about the, I don't know this part and I'm not going to even look it up, but when he talks about in the martyrdom of Peter, if that's a section of the Acts of Peter or if that's its own separate book, he's broke this always up by what book we're talking about, but this one isn't. It, like this section is just, was Peter crucified upside down? Um, which is, I think, the first section that isn't just a book title. So, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, and he doesn't give a date for that. So I'm going to just assume that it is based, uh, that it's a section out of the Acts of Peter. And let's go again, 80, 180, So the first mention would then be 180, of Peter being crucified upside down, which... Um, and then this mentioned by origin, uh, which they said in 230. So based on that being the only place it came from, it makes it seem kind of sketchy as if, if it's, if it's reliable or not. And I thought it, I thought it was a sure thing. Uh, like I just, you know, I heard it enough times. Peter was crucified upside down. And maybe he wasn't. I don't know. Maybe uh, someone can do some more work on that. Oh, well, someone who did some work on it from the footnote here. Jonathan Smith observes, Rather than dealing with an exercise in humility, we have here an act of cosmic audacity consistent with an expressive of a Christian Gnostic understanding and evaluation of the structures of the cosmos and of the human condition. For Peter to request to be crucified upside down was to deliberately dehumanize himself, to reverse the natural order, and to make of his death an act of rebellion against his manhood and the cosmos. So that just makes like this is fitting within Christian Gnostic tradition rather than historical tradition or Christian tradition, even though that whole story is a part of Christian, you know what I mean. You know, I've got a big section here of reading to, like, you know, I get to sections where I'm, I feel like I can't just s summarize it without, you know, having written it all down. I'm like, that's, th that's extra work. Uh, I'm trying to read a book right now and just highlight what I want. And it's the Apocryphon of James. The Apocryphon of James is, uh, is a synonymous text that describes the relevatory teachings of Jesus to James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter in the form of a letter to Serinthus, 550 days after his resurrection. The letter contains an Apocryphon, secret writing, of teachings for James and Peter, but not the rest of the disciples. Unlike the four Gospels, the Apocryphon of James consists primarily of sayings delivered in parables and speeches. It was first discovered with other Gnostic texts in the Nag Hammadi Library, in 1945, it contains a direct prophecy that P James and Peter would be crucified for their faith. And did he give a date for it there? No, he didn't. Um, and quote from the book, from the Apocryphon of James, Or do you not know that you have yet to be abused and to be accused unjustly, and have yet to be shut up in prison and condemned unlawfully and crucified without reason and 
buried shamefully as I was myself by the evil one. Do you dare to spare the flesh, you for whom the spirit is an encircling wall? If you consider how long the world existed before you and how long it will exist after you, you will find that your life is one single day and your sufferings one single hour. For the good will not enter into the world. Scorn death, therefore, and take thought for life. Remember my cross and my death, and you will live. Uh, then McDowell's writing again. James and Peter are specifically told by Jesus that they will be shut up in prison and condemned unlawfully and crucified without reason. This passage was written specifically from Jesus to James and Peter, so it is likely that the author was aware of their actual martyrdoms. Yet the text seems not to come from the tradition of their martyrdoms, especially since there's no, no known tradition that James was crucified, but on a creedal summary of the passion and death of Jesus. Our most pressing question involves the dating of this prophecy. Ron Cameron has argued that the Apocryphon of James should be dated between the end of the first century and the middle of the second. He essentially argues that the sayings in the Apocryphon of James are early and independent from the four Gospels, and in particular John. If so, this could be valuable early evidence for the martyrdom of Peter, even though there is no indication of when or where it took place. But not all scholars agree. Philip, that happens a lot. <laughs> um, where was I? Philip Jenkins writes, Suppose parallels, parallels between the Apocryphon and the New Testament passages are tenuous, and it really takes the eye of faith to see these resemblances. Often passages cited are, as parallels are describing broadly similar ideas, which are commonplaces of early Christian thought and rhetoric. Rather than being an independent testimony to early Christian thought, Jenkins notes the Apocryphon and other secret texts could equally be seen as historical, historical fictions, which use the canonical Gospels as springboard for their speculative tales and theological discourses. The Apocryphon of James is written as a remembrance of the teachings of Jesus to James and Peter, which was common, a common technical term used in the early church to indicate the passing on of living memory from Jesus to the disciples. Does this mean the Apocryphon of James contains early independent sayings of Jesus? Not necessarily, uh, Bach Mule observes. Here too we find an allusion to Peter's crucifixion, but the document's general tenor aims to subvert the traditional appeal to any apostolic memory of Jesus by appealing instead to Gnostic teachings. Clearly the author distinguishes himself from the wider Christian community by embracing certain Gnostic beliefs. While the document appeals to the living memory of Jesus, this is likely a latter literary device to convince readers of its credibility rather than a genuine tradition. Tracing back to the historical Jesus, the claim that the letter was written to James and Peter is another literary device meant to garner credibility for the document. It is certainly curious that no early church father quotes from the Apocryphon of James Although some would like to date the Apocryphon of James early, the only secure date is that it was written sometime before AD 314, when the threat of martyrdom and persecution of the church officially ended. While the author of the Apocryphon of James likely knew of Peter's fate as a martyr, without convincing evidence of an earlier date, the text, this text provides minimal corroboration for the martyrdom of Peter. At best, it shows that by the end of the 2nd century at the, 2nd century at the earliest, the crucifixion of Peter was assumed by both Orthodox and Gnostic circles alike. Our next document we're going to is uh, Dionysius of Corinth. Uh, he wrote to the Roman bishop Soter around the year 8170. And 
he was writing to bolster the position of Corinth against the power of Rome, apparently. Uh, in the letter, he mentions the martyrdoms of both Peter and Paul in Rome. Eusebius considers this letter confirmation that both Peter and Paul died as martyrs under the reign of Nero. You have thus, by such an admonition, bound together the planting of Peter and Paul at Rome and Corinth. For both of them planted and likewise taught us in in our Corinth, and they taught together in like manner in Italy and suffered martyrdom at the same time. The claim that Peter ministered in Corinth, while possible, is not explicitly stated in the New Testament. However, while it cannot be verified, it is certainly possible Peter visited Corinth, as Dionysus suggests. Now, there's some errors here, um, because Paul didn't found the church at Rome, because in Romans, uh, he writes about how he's not yet visited Rome, so couldn't be a founder. They didn't have virtual churches back then or anything. Uh, nevertheless, we should doubt that they have suffered martyrdom at the same time, since Dionysus may have been mistaken in his claim about the founding of both Corinth and Rome. We naturally ought to question his claim about the dual martyrdom of Peter and Paul in Rome. This is unlikely since Peter and Paul would have been executed with different methods. Most likely, Dionysius meant that they suffered martyrdom in the same era rather than the exact same moment. This is consistent with tradition and certainly more plausible. It is interesting that Dionysius is writing to Rome and states that both apostles were martyred there. Since this is well within living memory of the apostles, the church at Rome could easily have corrected this if it were not true. Were Peter and Paul not known to have died as martyrs in Rome, Dionysius' whole argument breaks down. Yet he offers their place of martyrdom as known fact. The earlier hints of First Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp that Paul was martyred in Rome under Nero are made more explicit in Dionysus of Corinth. And, oh, what's this? Getting near the end. Got two more and get to conclude. Uh, it is getting sweaty in this room. It is hot. Uh, Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote his most famous work against heresies at the end of the 2nd century, AD 180, placing it within the range of living memory of the Apostle Peter. His task was to refute Gnosticism, which had become a significant competitor for the church by the late 2nd century. Irenaeus claims to have personally listened to Polycarp, who was one of the last followers of the Apostle John as a young man in Asia. Um, and he gives a reference to the deaths of Peter and Paul, when he's defending the scriptural authority of the four Gospels, he says, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. And then we've got Irenaeus mentions the deaths, departures, of Peter and Paul, but provides no further details regarding their fate. He does not mention where, when, or how they died. In fact, natural deaths for both of them would be consistent with the statement in Irenaeus. However, given the strength of the tradition at this time concerning the preaching and martyrdom of Peter in Rome, it seems most likely that Irenaeus was well aware of the accounts that, and it felt it not unnecessary to repeat. And Tertullian uh, he's just, uh, McDowell writes that he's just close 
uh, comes after the close of living memory and he's got the uh, book the prescriptions against heretics and sorpiasi uh, near the turn of the third century 80 to 8 in the prescriptions against heretics um, he says that Peter would be crucified like Jesus says how happy is its church on which the apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, where Paul wins his crown in a death like John the Baptist, where the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and then remitted to his island exile. And he's even more um, specific in the Scorpiasi, however you say that, 15 where he states like the ascension of isaiah that the martyrdoms of peter and paul took place under nero he says and if a heretic wishes his confidence to rest upon a public record the archives of the empire will speak as with the stones of jerusalem we read the lives of the caesars at rome nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith then is peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross tertullian is so confident of his claims that he tells his doubters to examine the archives of the empire. If there were no such public records, Tertullian would have automatically undermined his credibility. His appeal to them indicates his confidence that they existed and, if examined, would corroborate his testimony. Therefore, Tertullian was likely relying upon even earlier public records about the Neronian persecution and the fates of Peter and Paul. And I uh, want to get another footnote here from Bauckham. Uh, there was sufficient precedent for the term departure to mean death in early Christian documents in response to the claim that departure could simply mean leaving. Bauckham concludes, since not even later traditions provide the possibility of a time which Irenaeus could have had in mind when both Peter and Paul had been in Rome, but had left, we must conclude that he meant to refer to their deaths. And now, to conclude, um... First of all, hope everyone was able to enjoy this. And you, if you, yeah, you probably noticed we didn't have the intro music and all that fun stuff, but um, I don't have access to that stuff. Well, I guess I do have it in, in some, I have it, but I don't have the program to edit things together uh, while I'm here. So back to the old way of doing things. So, the way uh, McDowell organizes this here in his conclusion is he brings it down into, he breaks everything that's been written down into uh, these points here. And this isn't all, he, he mentions the works that, you know, have been written the, um, about, in this case, Peter. There's a whole bunch more but he's focused only on the stuff that was written within living memory. So the first, uh, basically 150 years. And so when he's br breaking things down into, uh, four, uh, Oh, why don't I just read this? This close examination of the evidence in indicates that the following points can be regarded to have varying degrees of confidence from works written within the living memory of Peter. The martyrdom of Peter, the highest possible probability, is number one, um, then John 21, 18 and 19, 1 Clement 5, 
uh, four to five, Ignatius, letter to the Smyrnians, three, one, two, letter to the Romans, 4.3, Apocalypse of Peter, four, you know, you list a whole bunch of books uh, that we've talked about. Um, and he says, lack of any competing narrative weighs fair, favorably for the traditional view. The early and persistent tradition is that Peter was martyred for his faith. Then number two, the crucifixion of Peter. He uh, gives it a very probably true based on what we've read so far. Um, Peter was in Rome. He also ranks as very probably true. And then martyrdom during the reign of Nero uh, in AD 64-67. More probable than not. And this final paragraph, as seen, the individual components of the traditional view regarding the fate of Peter have varying degrees of historical probability. Yet when all the evidence is considered, the traditional view that Peter was crucified during the reign of Nero stands on solid historical ground. Hopefully, people did enjoy this. I've got Paul will be coming up next at some point. And I mean, this book goes through everybody. And, you know, this was the long one. Uh, Paul's will be long, too. Um, but, yeah, for example, how many pages was I going through for that one? That was based on... Oh, there was a bit at the beginning that I got from earlier chapters. But that was uh, 55 to 92. So, good chunk there. And Paul, I don't even know if anyone's interested in this but uh I, I'm, i've got control uh you know that one's gonna be based on page 93 to 114 a little shorter so just showing you know those are the big ones um which is obvious just based on how much we talk about them in the church uh you get to let's see i'm gonna flip over to uh martyrdom of james son of zebedee how many pages is that one? It is goes from page 188 to 192. So got like four pages for him. So some of these I might have to group together to, you know, do a two minute podcast on James, the son of Zebedee. But, you know, they got everyone in here. And I don't know uh, what, you know, Peter and Paul, most of us have heard, um, it's still good to get, I guess, the actual text. But from that, Peter was crucified in Rome under Nero. Um, if, if you knew that already, it's, you know, fun to get, oh, well, where does that come from? Other than just, you know, someone told me that. For some of these other guys, though, I actually have no idea what happened. I'm possible I read or was told at one point, but... Um, you know, I know some interesting stuff, uh, about like things like Thomas going to India, but I have no idea if he was then, um, martyred or not. Oh, spoilers. I don't know. I don't think I see a chapter about him. So maybe he's not, um, but don't know when I'll, you know, not going to stick myself through a timeline. I am on vacation. Uh, and got things to do uh, other than just read and record. But when I got time, it's, I have fun doing this. 
and helps me out in my learning. So I'll see you next time. Thanks everyone who listened in. Really appreciate it. And hopefully you're able to learn something like I have been. And we'll see you next time.